Hello, I'm Kimberly Dondo, Digital Content Manager, and welcome to In Conversation With, the podcast series that delves into the world of financial services and brings you face-to-face with some of the most notable figures in the industry. Listen as we discuss topics that are currently facing the industry and hear from visionary CEOs to disruptive innovators as we bring you a diverse array of voices and perspectives. We'll explore the challenges they faced, the lessons they've learned, and the insights they have to share about the ever-evolving landscape of financial services. Hello and welcome to In Conversation With. I'm Kimberly Dondo and in this episode I'm joined by Kunal Desai, um, Emerging Markets Portfolio Manager at GIB Asset Management. Thank you for joining me today, Kunal. Thank you for having me. Um, So could you give us a bit of background into yourself and how you got started in financial services? Yeah, sure. So um, I've been in uh, the investment management industry uh, for coming up to 13 years. Um, I started my career at a a boutique called Neptune Investment Management, um, where I started out as a global analyst on on technology and telecoms, uh, but quickly found that my passion really was for investing in emerging markets um, with an initial focus really on India, uh, where I ran the uh, India fund there for um, five or six years. Um, in 2018, um, I decided to, to leave um, and uh, join the founding team at Mobius Capital Partners, uh, which was an emerging market boutique um, set up uh, based in London. Uh, and really the reason for this was what we thought was a very differentiated view or approach to uh, active management. Um, for me, there was a, a little bit of frustration with the way in which active management was evolving, um, particularly mm-hmm. in emerging markets. And, and Mobius Capital Partners uh, was a really refreshing uh, way in which we thought we could make far more of an impact on our portfolio companies. Um, I was there for uh, three years and uh, in 2020-21, um, the, the, the team decided uh, to move on to GIB Asset Management, where we're, we're spearheading uh, the emerging market strategy today. Um, so mm-hmm. uh, three places which I've been, all with their different um, kind of elements, which have helped contribute to, to what is uh, a fascinating career as uh, working within emerging markets from an investment standpoint. Yeah, that sounds amazing. <laughs> um, and as an emerging markets portfolio manager, how does your sustainability-led approach influence the investment decisions you make? And what role mm. does value creation play in shaping your strategy? Yeah. So I guess kind of the, the frustration we had, um, certainly after kind of five or six years of, of running long only money, particularly in India, um, was what active management meant. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, being an active manager really was about deviations from benchmarks, whether you were 20, 30 basis points overweight or underweight a particular company. Um, mm-hmm. So really active management would, would active managers would talk about um, having an active share, which was 60, 70% as evidence that um, really they were different from uh, passive products. But really what I felt was that was a little bit unfulfilling um, simply because of the emergence of smart beta products, uh, more um, interesting ways that passive uh, capabilities were evolving. Uh, and really, this meant that active management, I felt, was going through a bit of a midlife crisis of, about what it should what it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, you know, what was important was seeing some of the work that private equity peers do, um, particularly with their portfolio companies, and mm-hmm. looking to incorporate some of those techniques with our own portfolio companies. Um, really, why thinking that true active management 
should mean using the tool of engagement across the portfolio to firstly identify where there's hidden value in a business uh, and then secondly partner with these companies to unlock it. Uh, and for me, really that focus on change uh, was important uh, because change not only implies that a company could be misunderstood and then you know, hopefully misvalued, uh, but also by focusing on change, it's a far better defense against passive products because they are by nature backward looking. Uh, and looking to change forward characteristics of companies in conjunction with these businesses, for me, um, was a really fulfilling way of what I believe true active management must evolve into, uh, particularly within emerging markets. Right. And going back to that point where you were transitioning to GIB investments from Mobius Capital in 2021 um, and setting up uh, the emerging markets active engagement strategy, what unique opportunities and challenges um, did you encounter and how has this influenced your investment philosophy? Yeah. So, you know, I think there's, there's a few things. The first being um, I've always enjoyed working within boutiques. Um, mm-hmm. I like small teams. Um, yeah. I think, um, you know, from an early age, I had a, an aversion towards uh, bureaucracy and um, kind of, you know, the, the ways in which some large corporations can can operate. Obviously, some large co- uh, corporations operate very well. But yeah. for me, being in a smaller team, um, which often can be far more nimble and agile, was something that uh, really was compelling. And, and that's certainly something I've seen from you know when I was a, in my childhood and at school being in, in smaller teams mm-hmm. um, but really with Mobius it was a, a very refreshing approach to this form of active management it, it really was um, working with colleagues who were specialists in this approach um, given the, the history they had had with working with private equity but also working with businesses in emerging markets where they were heavily involved in changing or, or improving aspects of corporate governance or approach to sustainability or how companies think about capital allocation and, and operational issues. Um, and it becomes uh, very clear that you become very involved with these businesses. These management teams are very um, receptive to outside suggestions because it helps them grow, um, particularly when you're able to give them a perspective which perhaps they don't necessarily think about because they are in the weeds of their companies to, to such a large degree. Um, and it was this approach which I thought really chimed with investors, certainly in um, coming up to 2020 when sustainability and ESG and improving governance standards mattered much more to institutional investors. Mm-hmm. Um, so being in a small team, um, having a philosophy um, which really chimed with my natural um, interest in active management and, and address some of the frustrations I had with traditional uh, long-only active management meant that um, it was a, a really interesting uh, period of, of, of my career and, and certainly an area which, which I learned a huge amount. I'd say one of the, the primary reasons or the challenges we faced um, mm-hmm. is what all boutiques face uh, in the industry today, which is to scale. Um, mm-hmm. And the industry itself is beset by a number of challenges. You know, there's fee pressure, which exists across the industry, um, costs and the, and the um, kind of elements of regulation um, are only rising. So you have this element of potentially revenue compression with cost inflation, which is you know, not a good place to be. Um, and to circumvent that, there's a huge amount of investment that's required um, to create an institutional uh, quality uh, product, um, which requires a significant amount of investment. And that's why GIB um, coming to approach us as a team uh, with two of my colleagues, Greg Konieczny and Martin Levchuk, um, it became a very attractive opportunity because there was this commitment to uh, invest in creating an institutional 
uh, product for institutional investors, both in Europe, but also in the Middle East. Um, and that required a significant amount of reinvestment in terms of business development, in terms of marketing, in terms of compliance, legal and, and back office support. So it was a combination of, of giving us the opportunity um, to express this philosophy, which we deeply care about alongside yeah. the investment um, of creating what we believe is an institutional uh, quality product, which can fit those type of investors. Yeah, I think those are all very valid points in terms of I I resonated with the team thing for sure. I think having a smaller team is much easier to get um, certain ideas off the ground. Um, you don't have to go up a chain. You can just talk to the person next to you and yeah. get it yeah. going. And I think, um, you know, one of the elements of of working within investments is you're on a constant journey of learning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you read some of the greats, you know, from Buffett to Charlie Munger to Malbison to all of the people that everyone, you know, enjoys reading from an investment standpoint, they never stop learning uh, yeah. right till then, their 90s. Um, I had that also at Mobius Capital Partners, Mark Mobius, who we worked with, um, again, consistently learned, even though he was, you know, in his 80s. Um, but the ability to learn is often framed and accelerated by being parts of teams. Um, and the initial um, role I had is uh, running an India fund by myself at Neptune, whilst it was hugely rewarding. Um, I think one of the elements which um, I missed was being part of a wider team yeah. where you're able to grow and you're able to bounce ideas and you're able to understand why your way of thinking may not necessarily be completely right. And I think by being part of a, a team with sharp feedback loops, um, that's certainly something that I would always point to as a suggestion of, of how um, being part of this industry can be can be improved. No, definitely. And could you share insights um, into specific trends or dynamics you've observed across the diverse uh, emerging markets you cover? Yeah, so I think, you know, when I started out in the industry um, in 2009, 2010, emerging markets was considered as a single asset class. Mm-hmm. Um, you had almost as a marketing tool, uh, the BRICS, which were, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, uh, and South Africa. Um, you had emerging markets, GEM, a global emerging market. This is an acronym which meant um, that it focused on a particular 15 economies, which people believed um, were highly correlated with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of proven to be false. Um, mm-hmm. We view emerging markets uh, really as a bouquet of individual market opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, key emerging markets are affected by different things. Um, some benefit from rising commodity prices. Others benefit from falling commodity prices. Some are domestically driven. Others are export facing. Some mm-hmm. are driven by the IP that they're able to generate. Other economies are driven really by attractive cost structures. So to put them into a single bucket, I think, is misleading. Um, mm-hmm. I think it was something which uh, we've been able to see during the 2010 to 2016, 17 period, where individual emerging markets had to work far harder for their growth. Uh, gone were the days of um, huge amount of liquidity in the markets. Gone were the days of um, the China really reflating global markets. And it became far more about individual emerging markets have to work, working harder for their growth through how they approach reform. Could you reform labor markets? Could you reform uh, capital markets? How did you think about land acquisition? Um, What could you do to improve uh, foreign investor appetite within your individual economies? Um, And you had the champions, you had the winners. Um, You had India, you had Indonesia, you had Brazil, who performed very strongly through capable uh, governance uh, and governments um, who were able to address this. Whereas you had some emerging economies which struggled, Turkey and South Africa, for example. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's been one of the biggest lessons from an emerging market investor standpoint is um, the divergence um, in the fortunes and narratives that certain emerging market economies are going through. Um, mm-hmm. The second aspect, the, the, the final aspect I'll quickly touch on is the delinkage between GDP growth and stock market returns. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, over the last 20, 30 years, um, it was often talked about focus on GDP growth. Look for the emerging economies, which are seeing the greatest acceleration in GDP. Uh, and that often can be uh, a really uh, attractive condition for stock market returns to improve. Right. Um, the story of China really has disproved that, where despite the fact that there has been strong economic growth, shareholder mm-hmm. returns largely have disappointed. Um, mm-hmm. And really the, the importance of the capital cycle of thinking how the supply side responds to uh, improving demand, I think is absolutely critical as you look at emerging markets today. Um, And again, looking forward to this year and beyond, there are clear winners from a capital cycle perspective uh, Mm -hmm. and also areas which we would seek to avoid. And so how might these observations impact the considerations of financial advisors in the UK? So I think, you know, from that perspective, don't be tricked into um, the holy grail of GDP growth. Um, Mm -hmm. Think about corporate profitability and really uh, work hard to understand sectors, subsectors where you see an improvement in return on equity. So how a company can grow in the context of how much resource it requires. Um, Mm -hmm. And again, this is a slightly different from the days where, um, again, it was looking for uh, macroeconomic uh, clues about what industrial production or PMIs or GDP growth would likely be. Um, And it's far more from our perspective, really thinking about a bottom up approach of identifying pockets um, of uh, growth, but really in the context of barriers to entry and competitive advantages that businesses have. Um, So I think the bottom up story um, for emerging markets is far more compelling. Uh, than it ever has been, um, simply because of this this change in narrative. So from a financial advisor perspective, meeting managers, meeting fund managers, um, really understanding their approach to bottom-up stock picking, um, I think is significantly more important than it was during the 2000s, rather than um, you know, fund managers talking about individual markets uh, and um, you know, pointing to where they saw the, the fastest acceleration from a growth perspective. I think that's a, that's a really important point, which, which, which matters. Mm-hmm. Um, the second also would be um, the importance, I believe, of, again, how, uh, how managers or, or how portfolios are shaped in the context of, of active management. Um, And for us, it isn't uh, kind of satisfactory or sufficient just to be uh, a fund which has a 60-70% active share. Um, But really, um, what the managers are doing from a stewardship perspective in terms of helping these businesses grow, um, Mm -hmm. because that essentially identifies sources of mispricing. It identifies areas of revisions from an earnings and a free cash flow perspective, uh, which can also be a strong predictor of forward returns for a particular portfolio or, or strategy. Right. And you've talked about active management and I can see that it's a key part of your strategy. Um, So how does this approach differentiate your investment strategy and what benefits does it offer your clients, um, especially in the context of emerging markets? The way in which we approach uh, active management is uh, through identifying businesses where we can work alongside and partner with the management teams of those businesses. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very different from hostile activism, 
which is where you need a large stake in a company and you smash heads together uh, and you're really aggressive and litigious. That's often a, an expensive and unsatisfactory way to, to affect change. For us, what matters is we're able to identify about 500 companies in the universe of 5,000 companies in emerging markets where they are receptive management teams willing to see an improvement um, in, in uh, ingredients that can improve their valuation and, and their market capitalization. Mm-hmm. And really what we focus on here is uh, engaging and working with these companies to affect two things. Um, the first is a, a suite of suggestions and an outside perspective to help improve the free cash flow health of the company. How can we improve the compounding power of your business? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the second aspect is what can we do to offer suggestions to improve investor perception, again, of your company? How can we reduce the market implied cost of capital? Now, if we're able to achieve an improvement in compounding power and also a reduction in the cost of capital, uh, this results in an improvement in the economic value added of a business and really results in a re-rating of the justified valuation multiple. Um, Mm -hmm. So for us, it's about finding aligned management teams um, who are aligned in terms of seeing and benefiting from an improvement in their share price and their market capitalization, and then focusing our suggestions on what matters most. Uh, We don't engage for engagement's sake. It's not a box-ticking exercise, but rather Mm -hmm. it's always focused on what we can do to improve the free cash flow power of a company or reduce the market implied cost of capital. And there's a range of of such suggestions um, which really encapsulate that. Mm -hmm. But the importance of it and why this matters is because what we're buying are businesses which are underestimated, which are mispriced by the market because they haven't fully reflected these changes to come. Um, and I think that what, that's why this can be a particularly appealing uh, strategy, because, again, it's focusing on that change. It's focusing on revisions. It's focusing on why implied expectations, which mean today's valuation of your company, don't fully justify or encapsulate the potential changes to come. Um, so it's really that creative forward-looking aspect um, which drives the returns of our product, um, because it is about unpicking that hidden value that exists in, in businesses today. Right. And given the current uh, global economic landscape, what challenges and opportunities do you foresee for emerging markets and how can financial advisors in the UK um, navigate these for the benefit of their clients? So I think, you know, when you look back at history of the last 30 years, um, there have been periods where emerging markets have performed strongly and there have been periods where emerging markets have suffered. Um, Through 1988 to 1993, um, you had uh, essentially uh, an emerging market, bull market, uh, individual emerging markets were liberalizing. The U.S. had its own uh, challenges. Through the 90s, it reversed. The U.S. was very strong. Uh, This was the glory period where productivity was improving, and it resulted in the uh, tech boom and bust, um, which then kickstarted a a strong wave of emerging market outperformance through the 2000s, really driven by China reflation and the commodity boom and, and falling global interest rates. Now, where we are today is a period after a long period of emerging market underperformance. Um, Clearly, the U.S. has been a very strong market. You're at the back end now of a very strong period of the U.S. dollar. Uh, Individual emerging markets have been through their own balance sheet repair story. Uh, And you've had what we call the lost decade from an emerging market relative performance. Um, So I think what's interesting today is the setup is favorable um, for emerging markets. And, And traditionally, it's when three things fall into place at the same time. Uh, The first is when emerging markets are unloved and they're out of favor. 
the second is when you see specific catalysts for change, uh, be it uh, a peaking and falling US dollar, uh, be it how interest rates in emerging markets are being cut far more aggressively than developed markets because they have less of an inflation problem. And mm-hmm. thirdly, and most crucially, is when you get a corporate earnings story emerge within key uh, developing countries. And again, uh, we're seeing now return on equity and earnings revisions uh, outstrip developed markets uh, from key uh, emerging markets. So I think the setup for emerging markets today um, is probably one of the most attractive that we've seen in a, in a generation, uh, really shaped by these three factors, which have confluenced at the same time. Um, but looking forward to this year, um, what should people be mindful of? I think uh, uh, elections is, is obviously uh, something yeah. which is important, the US election uh, and what that means for China. Uh, it tends mm-hmm. to be quite a bipartisan um, topic, China, the more that um, Republicans or Democrats can scream against China, the more popular it can be. Yeah. Uh, but also key emerging markets are having their uh, elections, Taiwan um, in a couple of days, uh, India um, towards uh, March, uh, sorry, April and May. Uh, mm-hmm. And also you have Indonesia and, and uh, China with a, a number of policy issues. So, um, uh, but really the, the, the key focus is on how corporate profitability, starting valuations and key catalysts are in play for emerging markets for the first time. Uh, as I said, in in uh, fifteen uh, plus years. Yeah, and finally, as a seasoned uh, portfolio manager with a focus on emerging ma- markets, what advice uh, would you have for financial advisors seeking to integrate insights from these markets into their investment strategies, and how can they stay abreast of the evolving dynamics in these regions? Yeah, well, um, difficult question, and I think I know, I'm still learning that as well. I, I um, think, you know, for a seasoned <laughs> professional might um, make it <laughs> make you feel more confident answering. <laughs> I think you know it's it's a. It's never boring emerging markets. And I think um, for uh, investors looking at emerging markets, I'd I'd kind of focus on two or three things. The first being, as I said, the bottom up story um, and really understanding how emerging market businesses uh, have evolved um, in in quite considerable ways um, over the last decade. Um, You have a number of companies which are the forefront of technological innovation. Um, You point to businesses in Taiwan and Korea. Um, and these businesses involved in the semiconductor value chain uh, are leading the world in terms of the alchemy and the chemistry and the ingenuity um, that are required um, to provide um, semiconductor chips, uh, which are focused on artificial intelligence, um, mm-hmm. uh, but not even just the chips, but the whole entire supply chain. And I think the uh, outdated view that emerging market companies are essentially replications or poor re- replicators of developed market companies that that's completely um, incorrect. You know, you do have these businesses which are at the forefront of, of technological change. So I focus on the business qualities. Um, I think emerging market investors tend to focus on the macro and the top down, whereas there's a far more interesting bottom up story that's emerging where you do have growth, but it's also um, uh, aligned with uh, clear barriers to entry, which allow profit pools to expand, which creates a a nice framework for returns for shareholders. Um, The second I would say is is travel. You know, it's reading and and meeting and and visiting these countries. Um, Obviously, COVID was, uh, you know, a terrible experience in many ways, but, you know, from an investing standpoint as well, um, not being able to see these businesses and um, not just the, the company themselves, but the entire 
supply chain and their, their customers and peers and clients and um, meeting these businesses in their offices is is hugely valuable uh, to understand not just the, the business quality and the operational ability, but also the culture that these businesses are, are trying to, to create, which is an important long-term driver of, of value creation for, for the companies. Um, and I suppose the, the final aspect um, would be you know, there's a huge amount of information, um, not just through podcasts, but um, through literature that's been written, which is now focusing on larger emerging economies. Uh, traditionally, when you would um, pick up a lot of the best investment manuals, they're focused very much on the US or Europe. Uh, but now that's beginning to change. And for anyone who's beginning to look at emerging markets, there's a huge amount of uh, resource available um, from a podcast perspective, but also from uh, an investment manual perspective, which certainly has been helpful for our team. And we would, we would anticipate to be so for others. Yeah, definitely. It sounds like it's an exciting time to look into emerging markets for sure. <laughs> we think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for speaking with me today, Canal. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to In Conversation With. We do hope that you enjoyed it. Please do keep up to date with all our new releases via Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your podcasts from. You can also keep up to date with all our new content published on the Money Marketing website, as well as our print edition, Money Marketing Magazine. So make sure to subscribe. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. See you next time. 